Well, before we uh, look at our passage, we had a blue slip question uh, last week. So we were looking at the way that the the new covenant has come, and we said that it uh, changed the way that we look at the Old Testament. Um, I'm going to try and record the talk. Unfortunately, it wasn't recorded last week, which was my fault. Um, I'm going to try and record the talk. So if you want to listen to it, it should be up, uh, hopefully, by early next week. This is the question. How should we view the Ten Commandments from the perspective of the New Covenant? Well, it's a very big question. Uh, I've got a book with me that, that there's a whole book been written on it. There's been several books been written on it over the years. Um, but the first thing I'd want to say is that Jesus' coming is huge, isn't it? Jesus' coming into the world split time in half, uh, gave us a new covenant, uh, and changed everything, didn't it, really? Jesus coming into the world. It would be surprising, then, if it didn't make some sort of difference uh, to the Old Testament laws, including the Ten Commandments. So I want to say with the Ten Commandments, we treat them the same as we treat the other laws that we see in the Old Testament that we looked at last week. Some laws, when we see them this side of the cross, look very similar. Uh, things like, you know, love your neighbour, looks very similar. Um, but other things like what to do with food laws and uh, various other things like that change, don't they? They look very different. They don't not apply but they apply differently this side of the cross. And the same is true with the Ten Commandments. So if you think of the way that Jesus teaches the Ten Commandments, he talks about, uh, uh, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder. I said to you, whoever is angry with his brother. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who lusts uh, after a woman in his heart, uh, sorry, looks at a woman lustfully, is guilty of adultery. So Jesus actually shows us that they're much bigger than they look like uh, in the Old Testament. We see them... Uh, quite differently in the New Testament. It's not so much the external that we saw with, um, with a lot of the laws of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. It's more internal. So ultimately, they're fulfilled as we love one another and as we love God. That's what Jesus said the two greatest commandments were. And that's not really to do with the external expression, though that part of it is important, isn't it? It does express itself. But what matters is really what's going on in your heart. So Paul, in Romans 12, uh, verses 8 to 10, uh, says this. He's talking about the, the Ten Commandments and how they apply now. He says this. Love one another... Oh, I am. I've got the wrong verse here. Sorry, 13, verse uh, 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You should love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour. Therefore, love is a fulfilling of the law. So that doesn't actually make the law easier, if you like. That actually makes the law harder. Because it's possible, isn't it, to do some of those things, like not steal. Well, we can sort of do that, can't we? But can we love people in a way that means quite the opposite of stealing, being generous, being open-hearted? We can say, oh, uh, don't commit adultery, but actually the command is bigger than that, isn't it? It's to do something out of love. It's not just begrudgingly not commit adultery because we're married, but actually to love our wives. So actually it makes it something much bigger and much harder because it's a heart thing. But it's not that we slavishly obey it. Actually, it's the freedom that we have now. These are the, the things that we do as part of who we are now, rather than trying to get to God, trying to work our way up to him, which we saw last time doesn't work. So if you've got any more questions about that, I'd say it's a huge question. 
Um, but do speak to me afterwards or, or write another blue slip question and we'll keep looking at that because it is a huge uh, question. We're going to carry on now in Hebrews. So if you uh, want to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14, we'll read that together. Hebrews chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table and the bread of presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. In it was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations thus having been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and of bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered it, offered Offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Well, I suppose we we looked at some bizarre laws, didn't we, uh, last week? And I think after genealogies and bizarre laws, uh, those verses that we read in Exodus are probably some of the uh, hardest verses in the Bible in some ways, aren't they? They're the graveyard for Bible reading schemes. As you get to that part in Exodus and you start reading about goats uh, and uh, all the sort of weird uh, different arrangements of the temple or the tabernacle. Let's face it, it reads more like an audio description of an Ikea catalogue, doesn't it? Really? It's, It's just explaining what you see in furniture. And here it is in the middle of a novel. But it's not just an Ikea catalogue, is it? It's an Ikea instruction manual. Uh, except for the one we've got in the Bible is infallible. Uh, once you get from Ikea, you always have those extra bits left over. But it, it's there to sort of show you how to make it. It's giving you instructions of how to put it together. And I mean, who sits and reads the instruction manual for that, that furniture when you've already put it together? You know, so I think, oh yeah, that wardrobe is amazing. I'll sit and read the instruction manual again. Just to remind myself how I did it. We don't do it, do we? How many people even keep the instruction manual? And we start to wonder, well, how can all this stuff be the word of the living God? 
Is this just a section that we sort of write off and sort of go, well, we'll just skip over that bit and get to the, the story? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us no. And just like we must view the Old Testament laws through the New Testament eyes, so we must view the Old Testament provisions for the tabernacle and the temple with New Testament eyes as well. The, Jesus, the coming of Jesus doesn't make them irrelevant. The coming of Jesus makes them relevant for us Gentiles living in Otley and Ilkley and various other places 2,000 years later. Without Jesus, you can kind of see how it would be pretty much irrelevant to us. But the author's going to show us, actually, that these things point us to Jesus and his high priestly work. And we'll see, again, that Jesus is so much greater, and his work is so much greater than what they had before. So our first point, then, is the layout. Uh, We see that there in verses 1 to 5. I've just read them to us, so I won't uh, read them again. Um, But basically, this is a description of what we read in Exodus, isn't it? This is a description of what the temple was like. And uh, just to help you sort of think it through, this is basically what he's describing. That's a a layout of the temple, uh, oh, sorry, the tabernacle uh, in the wilderness. Now, it's interesting, actually, isn't it, that he goes for the tabernacle, because actually, for him, the tabernacle wasn't around. The tabernacle had gone away a thousand years before the author of Hebrews was writing. What the author of Hebrews may or may not have had, depending on exactly when it was written, was the temple in Jerusalem. But instead, he goes to the tabernacle. This is roughly what it would look like. People have uh, remade it. Do you want to switch the lights off to see if we can see a bit clearer? Roughly what... That's not a lot clearer. (laughs) Um, Well, it would have been bright in the desert too, so it's probably quite a good uh, good impression. Um, But people have remade it. That's roughly the scale of it. It's not as huge as you might imagine it. Um, But that's what it looked like. And it is the tabernacle in the wilderness. But if you think about the book of Hebrews, where we've been going, it's all been about the wilderness generation, hasn't it? Think about it with Moses and Aaron, and talking about the rebellion in the wilderness. Uh, So Hebrews 3 verse 15, this has been our verse all the way through, hasn't it? And it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. It's almost as though he's comparing the Hebrews to their ancestors and saying, this is sort of the position that you're in. Are you going to make it to the promised land? Because these are the generation, aren't they, that turned their back on God and headed, wanted to head back to Egypt. Just like these guys are being tempted to turn their back on Jesus and go back to Judaism. Just like we attempted to go back to our old life as well. So it's no mistake that it's the tabernacle rather than the temple that he's talking about. Now the original hearers would have been very familiar with each part. I'm imagining that we're not. Uh, so I'm just going to take you through what he describes. So the first thing that he mentions in the holy place is the lampstand. That's sometimes called the menorah. And it looked a little bit like this. Uh, it looked like a tree with sort of seven branches. Uh, and on top of each was a, an oil holder that was shaped like an almond flower. It was almost a bit like a tree of life and of light right there in the temple with God. And it was the only light in the tabernacle. Its fuel was olive oil and their duty as priests was to make sure that it never went out. It was supposed to be a perpetual witness to God, a sort of everlasting light there in the temple. You you see some uh, similar things to this this time of year uh, because when the temple was desecrated, they rededicated it in a festival called Hanukkah 
which is in between uh, the two uh, of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they relit the menorah, they relit uh, the lampstand, and that's why they celebrate it uh, around this time of year. But that's the, um, that's the, uh, the, um, <laughs> the lampstand. The second thing we see is the, the table and the bread of the presence. Again, that's roughly what it looked like. Uh, the bread was there to symbolise God's presence with his people. There were 12 loaves of showbread, which were replaced every week on the Sabbath. Um, so uh, the priest could eat of it uh, when it had been replaced, but only eat of it in the holy, in the holy place. Um, they were allowed to eat it, but they had to keep it inside the temple, if you like. But it was only allowed into the, the outer part of the temple. They weren't allowed into the, the inner section. This was just on the outer section of the tabernacle. Now, the inner section, the most holy place, is a little bit more complicated. I know this is a lot of information download, but just bear with me. Um, uh, this is a picture there of uh, the um, uh, altar of incense. And there's quite a few question marks over this, because actually... Uh, if you read it in Hebrews, it tells you that it's in the inner section. But if you look at our diagram, it's there in the outer section. So it's as though it sort of moved it across. Uh, and there's a big button. That's not the right button. There we go. So it sort of moved it across to the, the inner section. And people get really het up about it. Um, but basically, what you need to understand about it is that the altar of incense would be where the priest would go and offer incense uh, in the tabernacle. They'd been prescribed exactly what incense they had to offer. And once a year, they would go in on the Day of Atonement and they would put blood on the horns uh, of the, uh, the altar to, to consecrate it to God. And then they would carry a censer of incense into the most holy place. So they would take a bit from the top and they would take that into the, the inner sanctum, if you like. It was a sort of sweet-smelling smokescreen as they approached the Ark of God. But as I say, the problem is that the, they seem to put it, in Hebrews, inside the most holy place, rather than in the holy place. Now, it's ambiguous in Scripture. A couple of times it's described as before the ark. Uh, I've stuck a verse from Exodus on the back of your notice sheets, but there's no need to say, but it is referred to as before it. And it's ambiguous in Hebrews because it's not the normal word that's used for that particular part of temple furniture. On the Day of Atonement, as I said, a censer would be carried through, and it's that word. It's the idea of a golden censer rather than the thing itself. So, what's the point of this? Well, basically, it seems as though the, the author wants to uh, convey the idea that the altar of incense and the censer belong to the most holy place, even if they're not physically there. The incense that was burnt on there was to fill the whole tabernacle, even though it's located in just one place. The ministry of it, this, belonged to the most holy place, if you like, because it was to create this smokescreen even though its location was outside. It's interesting to note that it never uses the word in, it uses the word having, as in belonging to. So, for example, my house has a drive, but my drive is not in my house. Yeah? So there's that. And then there's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we're probably a bit more familiar with this, even through Indiana Jones. Uh, but uh, this was a box covered with golden bird-like angels on top. And no one could touch it and live. It had to be picked up with poles, which is why it's got the loops uh, at the side. This was where God met with his people. 
And it's sometimes called the mercy seat, as though God is sat down on top of it, offering mercy to his people. The issue is what's in the ark. So the Bible tells us in many places that the Bible, uh, that the ark contained the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. But the author of Hebrews adds the staff of Aaron that budded and the jar of manna that God had fed them with in the wilderness. Now, we are told that they are put in the most holy place, but never in the ark itself. Again, I've put you two verses that mention that. But in the end, we're just going to have to go with scripture on this point. If the author of Hebrews tells us that they were put in the ark, then that seems to be what happens. At some point, they seem to disappear when it mentions what's in the ark later on. But that's quite normal in scripture. The ark itself will disappear uh, later on without mentioning that it's gone. So we won't dwell on this much longer, because actually, if you look at what the author says... Uh, in verse 5, of these things we cannot speak of now in detail. So that's as much detail as I'm going to give to you. That's basically uh, the layout. But it's worth mentioning, isn't it, that this was God's idea. God was giving them exactly what to put there. But it's limited to what's there on earth. God is giving them instructions for earth. But as we've already seen, they have a more significant meaning. So Hebrews 8 verse 5, we saw last time, They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see that you make everything in accordance to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So what he's saying is, the layout, okay, it's important, but it's actually there to teach us something bigger. It's there to actually teach us something about God. So our second point is that the layout screams stay out. Screams stay out, verses 6 to 10. I'll read them to us again. These preparations, thus having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only, the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So with all this in place, with all the furniture there, with it all ready, the priests go in daily into the first section, that's into the holy place. But only the high priest goes into the most holy place and only once a year. That's on the Day of Atonement. Blood has to be shed for him to enter. Offerings for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. We said last week, didn't we, that actually the Lord doesn't really give provision uh, for the sins that are deliberate. It just gives judgment for those sins. And even the sacrifices that he offered couldn't clear their guilt that they felt inside. All of this dealt with the externals, food and drink and washings. So the author's going to go into much more detail in later chapters about the significance of all this. But the point that he makes here is that the Holy Spirit is telling us that by setting up, by setting up the tabernacle in this way, that access to God is closed. Access to God is closed. The elaborate rituals that the priests had to go to, all the different sacrifices and offerings and incense, all that just so you could go in for what amounted to a few minutes a year. 
The whole tabernacle is like a giant parable for the old age. The word section there, when it talks about the, uh, the uh, section that we have, um, uh, back there in back there in verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open, as long as the first section is standing. Actually, that word section is the word tent. It's the word tabernacle. Uh, so it's actually just saying as long as the first tent was standing, the way is not open. So the whole tabernacle is like a giant parable saying, actually, we're closed, closed access, God hidden away from view. You need the blood of bulls and goats to get in. It's all external. It's all earthy. And the point of him telling them this is that this is what they come out of. He's saying this is what you attempted to go back to. Why? Why would you go back to this closed system where you needed to go through a priest and just once a year to access God? And his other point is this, that these things were only ever meant to be temporary. There's the idea of inbuilt obsolescence. Have you ever come across that phrase, inbuilt obsolescence? I think it's true with uh, washing machines. I'll explain what it means there. So there's a theory... I don't know if it's true or not, but at one point they made washing machines that were so good that they would never break. And there was a slight problem with this, that if you bought a washing machine that never breaks, you don't sell a lot of washing machines, because once you bought one, you've got it for life. So I heard a theory that uh, they started to build in this sort of breakdown mechanism that after a certain amount of time it will stop, (coughs) because then you have to buy another. Uh, so that's the idea of inbuilt obsolescence. Uh, I don't know whether it's true about washing machines. If you ever meet someone in the washing machine industry, please do ask them on my behalf. Um, but it's the idea of it winding down deliberately. And that's true here with the old covenant, with the uh, old system, with the temple. It's got inbuilt obsolescence. Uh, it's going to fade away eventually. They were only there until the time of reformation, it says. Now, we've talked a lot about the Reformation, haven't we, over the last few weeks, but here is the original Reformation. Not Luther's Reformation, but Jesus' Reformation, the one that he brings. The temporary time is now over. We now have a greater tent, a greater temple. So it's worth mentioning, then, that the old tent is not there to be copied. Okay? The old tent is not there to be copied. That's a mistake that Christian groups have done all the way through the centuries. Bringing back in what God has taken out. So the idea of holy buildings with different sections that sort of look like a temple. Earthly priests. You know, the idea of somebody standing at the front and being between you and God. Altars. Holy water. Rituals. Special days. Special weeks. Special months. I often wonder whether it's sort of like, you know, they've got the Old Testament out and they've read these passages in Exodus. Ah, oh, priests. That sounds like a good idea. Let's let's bring that in. Oh, 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 oh yeah, let's do that. I don't know. I can't prove that again, um, but I do wonder because all these things belong to the old covenant. The time of reformation has come. That's why we don't do those things. Those things actually were there to show you that to, to keep you away from God, if you like, to show you that God was far away, to expose the distance between God and us. But it's a distance that's been bridged in Christ, isn't it? He's brought us near to God. So there's no need to go back to the old that showed us how far away we could be when actually we've been brought near by Christ. 
You see, the layout screams stay out, but there is a way out, verses 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? What it's saying here is that Jesus has come to stop this old system. He goes through the greater and more perfect tent. Now it must there refer to heaven, because that's the realm that's sort of not of this creation, not made with human hands. So in this way, the the tabernacle is some way a picture of heaven, if you like. That's what it's showing us. With God sitting on his throne in the holiest place. But Jesus has ascended into heaven. That was a big theme of the earlier chapters, wasn't it? He's now seated at the right hand of God. He's right there in the Holy of Holies. And he didn't get there by shedding the blood of goats and calves. But by shedding his own priceless redeeming blood. And by doing so, he's secured for us an eternal redemption. Now, you don't hear about redemption very much, do you? Apart from with uh, gift tokens uh, this time of year, don't you? You know, you redeem your gift token uh, at the supermarket or at the Marks and Spencers. Now, I think gift tokens are a bit of a con, if I'm honest with you. Um, You know, you have to spend them in their shop. That's one of the reasons that they, they give you them. And also, they have an expiry date. Uh, lots of them don't they so you know we've, we've had the situation before where people have got us gift tokens and so I think oh I'll, you know we'll spend them at Debenhams next time we go to a Debenhams and next time you go to a Debenhams you realise that actually the, the token has expired and the person who bought you has basically just given Debenhams 10 quid or 20 quid uh, just for you to sit with it there but imagine a gift token that never expired imagine a gift token that had no end date if you like Well, that's like the blood of Christ. It has no end date. It has no expiry date. It's eternal. It's not going to be replaced by something else. We're not going to get to heaven and find that it's expired. It's eternal. He's purchased us an eternal redemption. So we never need fear that it's going to expire. But imagine, this is even more amazing. Imagine a gift token that never ran out. Can you imagine buying someone that for Christmas? You know, about infinite. Just keeps going. Just keep spending, keep spending. Well, the blood of Christ is like that. It always has more. You can never exhaust the blood of Christ. The generosity of this God who gives and forgives and forgives again and again and again and again, over and over and again and again. That's the picture that we have of Christ's blood here. A redemption that never expires and never runs out. How much greater is that than the blood of bulls and goats and the earthly sacrifices of the priests? His point here is if animal blood worked on the external, animal blood, not even human blood, animal blood, 
How much more of the blood of the Son of God work on the internal? That's his point. On our hearts, on our consciences. Christ who offered himself unblemished. No sin. And he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. The whole of his ministry and his life and his sacrifice was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's referred to here as the eternal spirit, as if to underline the eternal nature of the redemption that Christ has won, that never runs out, that never expires. Now, knowing that shouldn't send us out to sin, but it should make us fall on our knees in praise and worship to God. It should make us committed to serve the living God. It should move our hearts. And that's the goal here, isn't it? Have a look at verse 13. Sorry, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, forgiveness doesn't lead to sin. It leads to service. So I want to ask you this morning, if you know that you're forgiven, if you know that the blood of Christ has covered you, are you serving the living God? Are you turning from those dead works that it talks about? Are you seeking his kingdom first? Are you seeing to it that, as we heard earlier in Hebrews, that there not be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhorting one another daily, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Are we serving God by serving one another? That's what God wants us to do. Or are we just coasting? Just carrying on as normal, going along? The danger with coasting is that we start to float backwards. Isn't it? Backwards towards a system that offers us no mercy. Backwards towards a system that cannot bring us to God. Whatever that system was, that cannot do those things. So if you're a Christian here this morning and coasting, can I encourage you to come back to Christ? Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let your heart be pierced anew by his living word. Confident Christians this morning, is there a danger of you drifting back into focusing on the earthly rather than the heavenly buildings, externals. Because the house of God isn't a building, is it? We saw it in our kids' talk, didn't we? It's a people who share an eternal destiny, a people united by faith. We sang earlier, now we are his temple, filled with his spirit, made for doing good in Jesus. So are you focusing on the externals, or are you focusing on the things that really endure? What endures? People endure, and our holiness endures. So those are real works of service as we look to those things. So what would that look like? Well, it would look like investing our time and energy in people. Because actually we are eternal souls, aren't we? And we're going to spend eternity with one another. So are we exhorting one another daily? Are we calling people who don't know Christ to come to him? It's often said, isn't it, that people uh, who uh, focus on heavenly things are of no earthly use. I don't think that's true. 
Because actually, if you focus on the heavenly things, you can see what really matters. And actually, God wants us to love one another, to care for one another, to serve one another. That's how we serve the living God. So we're to do that, we're to invest time and energy in people, because they are our brothers and sisters and God wants us to. But we're also to be fighting sin in our own lives. Not being satisfied with the spiritual status quo. So whether you've been a Christian for a week or for a few decades, we all need to be investing in the eternal. And this will look very nitty gritty as we fight sin in our life. Again, you sort of think, heavenly doesn't look like fighting sin. But it is. And can I say this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, can you see how wonderful this is? Christianity doesn't offer you religion with smells and bells. It doesn't offer you rules and rituals. It promises you life, freedom from guilt, forgiveness. So often Christianity is portrayed as a device to make people feel guilty, isn't it? But in fact, Christianity is there to give us a clear conscience, not a guilty one. More of that uh, next week. But can you see how superior this is to religion that focuses on the externals? Jesus didn't come to bring us religion. He didn't come to bring us slavery. He came to bring us life and life to the full. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not enslaved. I'm a free agent. Well, here's a quote from a movie called Fight Club about someone whose life was enslaved to furniture. He said, you buy furniture. You tell yourself, this is the last sofa I will ever need in my life. Buy the sofa, and then for a couple of years you're satisfied no matter what goes wrong. At least you've got the sofa issue handled. Then the right set of dishes, then the perfect bed, then the drapes, then the rug. And then you're trapped in your lovely nest. And the things you used to own now own you. Do you own things? Or do they own you? Even Ikea can become a religion. If furniture can enslave us so easily, how easily must we be enslaved? So all of us, we must look to Christ. We must look to him who cleanses us on the inside. We mustn't fear passages like we read earlier. They're there to point us to Christ. They're not there to bring us back into religion. They're there to show us the way out, our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look to him and look beyond the externals to the things that last. Let's pray.